Hello, this is Play DNA, and I am your host, Damon, and I am here with Sarah and Cassandra, who are my co-hosts. Uh, we're going to talk today about the history of board games in America. There's a long history across the world, but America has a particularly weird history of board games, uh, so I figured we would go over that and go over like 400 years as fast as we possibly can. Awesome. <laughs> Very cool. That's a lot of history. Yeah, it actually sounds kind of boring, but it's it's not, I promise. It's, it's actually like interesting <laughs> stuff here. So when when we go all the way back to like the, the beginning of American history, um, the Pilgrims and the Puritans uh, saw all game playing and dice games as tools of the devil. Of course. Um, so this was just like a standardized, like everybody knew that if you, it wasn't just gambling, it was anything to do specifically with cards and dice would would draw you into the claws of the devil. And, um, and you would become, like, demonically possessed. Um, so uh, the first thing I ran into was in 1622, um, Governor William Bradford discovered non-Puritans playing stool ball. I don't know what stool ball is, and I have no idea how to find out. So we just have to pretend like we know what stool ball is. Um, but they were playing stool ball in the streets on Christmas Day, and he confiscated the implements of stool ball. Um, and then... Uh, told them that they had to go, like, stay in their homes, and they couldn't leave their homes because they were inviting the devil into the town. Um, so this was, like, the beginning of, of the end for, like, the possibility of game playing in oh America for, like, hundreds of years. But stool ball was a sport of some kind. It was all games at that point. It, was, it, it started off with, like, the idea of dice, and then it was anything to do with playing of any kind, and that included sports. Was the idea that... It was bad that you could gamble on any of these things? No, that's like a very modern idea. Okay. It was like the concept of play was also, in, it was like work was was devotion, but play was, anything that wasn't work was a problem. And play was obviously even, not. Even for kids? Even for kids, yeah. That's horrible. It's not, it's not kind. I mean, I guess at that if you point. Made, I guess if you made up an imaginary game, maybe it wouldn't be a problem. But I think the rules were probably the issue. Okay. It's hard to tell. It's There were hundreds of years of this stuff. It, it, it makes sense, too. I guess at that point, there were probably a lot of children who were working at factories. No, this, or is, this working is the 16th in, century. This is all agriculture. Oh, before... Fa right, okay. This is all so, agriculture. So they were working on farms, and people were literally having children to help them work on the farms. Yes. Yes. Um, so Thomas Jefferson specifically said, and I'm going to quote Thomas Jefferson here. He said... Uh, Almost all these pursuits of chance produce something useful to society. And here he's talking about human industry. But there are some which produce nothing and endanger the well-being of the individuals engaged in them or of others depending on them. Such are games with cards, dice, billiards, etc. And although the pursuit of them is a matter of natural right, society perceiving the irresistible bent of some of its members to pursue them and the ruin produced by them to the families depending on these individuals consider it a case of insanity. Step in to protect the family and the party himself as in other cases of insanity, infancy, imbecility, etc. And suppress the pursuit altogether and the natural right following it. So that's Thomas Jefferson talking about games of all kinds. Oh my god. Uh, they were not friendly to games <laughs> at all. Um, so it took until the 19th century for games to be like, accepted in the country in any way. And even then it was, it was children only. Um, and at that point it was uh, children encouraged to play board games, but all the board games produced were based upon Christian morality. Um, so as people started moving into cities and you weren't like working on a farm 10 hours a day, the children still had to do something. And there was like this gap of time where like, what do children do? I guess we'll set them working 
But what do they work at? Well, they've got to learn their Bible, but they can't read. So we have to <laughs> figure out a way to get them to learn their Bible really quick somehow, and we're going to give them these board games. Um, so they gave them uh, biblical board games, uh, and there were games like Pope and Pagan, and a game called Siege of the Stronghold of Satan by the Christian Army, where you uh, played oh as you played as missionaries against barbarian cultures like the Hindu. Oh no! And these were like, oh, these were marketed gosh. games. The games were like twenty five cents, um, and they were they were popular enough. Uh, games we now know, like Shoots and Ladders, was originally Snakes and Ladders, and that was a religious game. Uh, it was snakes leading you to hell, and heaven was the top of the board. But it was originally supposed to teach you your Bible if you couldn't read. Plus, for 25 cents, if you can defeat the devil, that's a cheap price. (laughs) (laughs) Costs a lot more today, I think. I don't know. So the original game of life was called the Checkered Game of Life. Uh, This came out in 1860, and it was the first game that rewarded you for anything other than studying the Bible. Um, It rewarded you for attending college, uh, marrying, and it also, most importantly, it rewarded the player for making loads of money. Hmm. Um, this was the first time this had ever been seen. The idea of money making in a game at all t- didn't exist. Um, so even though this was a still fundamentally a children's game, um, this was the beginning of board games as we understand it today, which are based mostly around capitalism rather than soul saving. Uh, oh. So this was like a break in that idea, and this was in 1860. Um, it was just like a sudden change in what you play. Um, so this was the rise of Milton Bradley. Um, they produced the checkered game of life. That was their, their successful game. That was the, the thing that made them Milton Bradley. Um, they were marketing themselves not as an uh, entertainment company, but as an educational company. And this was an educational game. It's just like a totally different kind of education. Were Milton and Bradley the guys who founded the company? I didn't actually check on that. I didn't know if there was a Milton and Bradley or if it's just one, one person. Um, but the Parker brothers were actual brothers. Interesting. Uh, the Parker brothers were uh, uh, George and Charlie, and they started selling independent games at 16. And they started selling a game called Banking in 1883. Um, so this is, this is 20-ish years after um, the checkered game of life, and they're teenagers, and they're selling this game independently. Um, then they started a company called Parker Brothers, and they were making these games competing with what were now a bunch of capitalist games. So now there were like a bunch of capitalist games that were riding on the back of the checkered game of life, and some of these were for kids and some of these were for adults. But for a decade, they were competing um, with these games without making their own capitalist games. So they were making things like Tiddlywinks. <laughs> and my grandmother told me about Tiddlywinks when I was really little, and she talked like really excitedly about Tiddlywinks. Like it was like this thrilling game, and then like years later, we played it, and it was super underwhelming. <laughs> what is it? What is it about? The Tiddlywinks, it's not about anything. Tiddlywinks is just, there's these little. Like they're like pogs. They're like little chips of plastic, and you flip them into a cup, and that's it. It's just oh, you have the little yeah, chips. Yeah, that's you flip exactly them into a cup. like pogs. No, pogs is like you smash. Oh, them I guess the you sm- you're right. You smash. Nobody them. really. Pl- nobody knew how to play pogs when pogs were popular. Nobody yeah, actually I, did that. I had pogs. I didn't know how to play with them. Um, they were competing this way, uh, and then finally in 1904 they published Pit, uh, and, and yes. some people know about Pit. I don't. Have you, Love did Pit. you play Pit? Okay, yes. I don't remember if we played Pit together. Um, but Pit is awesome. I love everybody Pit. likes Pit. Not everybody knows what Pit is, but everybody likes Pit. I would disagree with that. People who you don't, don't think play likes it. Pit? No, I just feel like the people who aren't playing it think it's really loud. I want you to shut up. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> everyone, There's definitely everyone really, like, <laughs> neighbors hate Pit. They <laughs> yes, do. Absolutely. They really do. Yeah. Well, Pit is still sold today, so it's not just like this old game that just gets passed down. So it's been a popular game for more than a century. It came out in 1904. 
when I got my copy, I got it on eBay for a dollar, including shipping. Uh, and the copy was <laughs> from the 1920s, including shipping. It was one flat dollar with free shipping. Somebody really wanted to get rid of this copy of Pit, like a cursed <laughs> copy of Pit. And w- <laughs> I hope it hasn't cursed you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got it, and it was like falling apart. Like it was like it, it hasn't fallen apart yet, but it, it's on its way. It's old. It's very old, and um, it was it was from the 1920s. Uh, and I'd wanted to try it because of board game designers had called it the first modern board game, whatever that means. And uh, and then we tried it, and then they were right. Like, it's an excellent game. It's an awesome game. It describes itself as the world's liveliest party game. <laughs> and I think they're right. It plays up to seven people. Um, and it's based, I quote, uh, it's based on the exciting scenes of the American corn exchange, <laughs> usually styled the wheat pit, which is why it's called pit. Uh, now, there, I don't know if there's still an American corn exchange. I assume there is not. But at the time, this was like a huge deal, and everybody was into the American corn exchange. Um, and in Pit, there are nine cards, each of grains like wheat, barley, or corn, and you trade cards in real time with other players to try and corner the market on one grain. So you start the game by striking a bell, and then everyone starts screaming numbers, uh, trying to trade cards as fast as humanly possible until someone has a full set of nine cards of one grain. Um, so when described, that doesn't necessarily sound that great, but the game is incredible. It's very, very simple. It requires very few cards. It doesn't even really require a bell. And yeah, it's an excellent game. It's excellently designed. It's very well, well constructed. Uh, my copy of Pit describes itself as a novel, exciting amusement for progressive parties, <laughs> which I don't know if that means anything anymore. But at the time, it was like a huge diversion for what you expected. Um, it was a copy of a game that came out a year earlier, 1903, called Gavit's Stock Exchange. So it wasn't even an original game. It was already like a copy of a previous game. Oh, I didn't Um, know that. Yeah, it's like also Parker Brothers would later go on to do all sorts of things like this. Um, But it did change the way that games are made once they published this. Uh, And then two years later, in 1906, Parker Brothers published Rook, which I've never played, although I feel like I've heard of. I've um, seen it before. I've never played it. It's still definitely, I don't know if it's sold, but it's played in the southern United States. Um, and it's a card game that was intended to placate the fundamentalists who still considered card games a slippery slope to hell. <laughs> so there were people who were, there was a backlash against Pit as being like a dangerous game. Way too lively. Right. It was, it really was too lively and too progressive. Right. And uh, Rook was like their their counterproduct, which was if you are, if Pit is dangerous, give your kids Rook and they'll be safe from the devil, which might be brought into your home by Pit. Um, so yeah, they had like a total market of every card. Like that was what Parker Brothers was doing was because they couldn't compete with bigger board game companies. They were making these card games, which were cheaper, way cheaper to make. What made Rook not the game of the devil? I don't know how to play Rook and I didn't find out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's just kind of stale or kind of a boring game or maybe non-competitive i think it's some as i understand it, it's some kind of trick-taking game maybe similar to hearts somehow okay interesting i don't know enough about traditional cards it makes me think about graham crackers and how graham crackers were originally designed to make people feel less sexual desire what? <laughs> you're supposed to eat them and it would it would keep you wholesome uh, wow, how did it, it was, do that? Because it had such a plain, boring flavor. The same uh, cornflakes were also designed for the same purpose. Like they were that. so bland. Right, because so they're so bland. bland. So, so maybe, maybe Rook, Rook is, Rook is really so bland. bland you can't possibly <laughs> be excited by it. Yeah. It's possible. Interesting. 
<laughs> uh, so there was like a lull in the gaming market uh, now because suddenly World War One was happening and nobody had time for board games or card games or anything. Except at the same time, in 1904, the same time Pitt is being produced, um, Lizzie Maggie is producing Monopoly herself. Um, at the time, it's called The Landlord's Game, and it had been patented in 1904. They wouldn't get the name Monopoly until 1933. Lizzie Maggie was an anti-monopolist. She was trying to explain the single tax theory and educate Americans on the dangers of land concentration. So it was super riveting stuff. <laughs> um, her game was obviously thrilling. Uh, she was self-publishing it by 1906, and by that point, Monopoly had two rules. Um, one set was anti-Monopoly, where you were rewarded as wealth is created. And then one set was called Monopoly, uh, where the goal is to crush your opponents with an iron fist. Um, and the game was locally quite popular, and people started creating their own variants for years. And she was trying to educate people on the dangers of capitalism and the values of socialism. And I don't know if that was working, but people were playing the game. A man named Charles Darrow played a copy of the Landlord's Game at a party, and he tried to pitch what was then an independent game to Parker Brothers. It wasn't his game. He just played it and then took the rules and tried to pitch it to Parker Brothers instead. And they quickly learned that he didn't invent the game, and they tracked down Lizzie Maggie and, and bought her rights for $500. Oh, no. Uh, because even though people were playing it, I don't think she was making a whole lot of money off of the game. $500? That's quite a bit back then, isn't it? It's more than $500 today, but I think for... Ugh, compared to how popular Monopoly is now. Yeah. She was not happy with the situation, but I think that it was either that or they were going to publish their... They were going to make their own version one way or another. And so they published it with just the Monopoly rules. Now there were no anti-Monopoly rules. There was no socialism education. It was just Monopoly, uh, and it became super popular. It was popular before wherever she was spreading it and wherever people were making their own versions, but now there was actually a company producing it and, and selling it across the United States. And it actually it produced relatively quickly. So this is at the beginning of, of like, we're just now coming into World War II. So previously, war game, like, board games were being ruined by a world war, and now we're coming into another world war as Monopoly is becoming popular. Um, but it wasn't just popular in the United States. So by 1941, um, there was a special edition of Monopoly created for British prisoners of war held by the Nazis, where they hid maps and compasses and money inside games of Monopoly and distributed them through charities in Europe to prisoners of war so they could escape camps. That is fascinating. <laughs> Um, and during that same period, in Nazi-occupied Netherlands, the Germans made their own versions of Monopoly to replace the American and British versions that all of the Dutch people were playing to try and prevent them from, like, rebelling. Um, and so, since the games that the Germans made weren't specifically pro-Nazi, uh, in the Netherlands, you still play those, those German-produced Nazi propaganda Monopoly games because they're, they're, like, traditional now. What? Yeah, they're still there. Their, That's still their, their version, version of, of Monopoly. Monopoly is pro-Nazi? It's not pro-Nazi. It was made by the Nazis to prevent them from getting American and British sympathizing feelings. And they just kept kept making and playing the same version of the game. But it's got what? symbols? No, it's, it. it's, it's just... I guess they just didn't want them looking at like American-sounding locations. So they changed it to Dutch-sounding locations. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't so much pro-Nazi as it was anti-us. Um, and it worked. And they kept playing it. And now that's the game they play. Wow. Uh, th that would be the beginning of like the idea of Monopoly. Monopoly tradition goes back to the very beginning. Like in 1906, people were already making their own versions and making their own house rules. Like the Monopoly house rule thing has always been a thing. People have been making that since the very beginning. 
Um, and so they were obviously doing like just recreating and reconstructing new versions of Monopoly over and over and over again was always a, a property of that game. Um, so a couple of things about Monopoly. First of all, those like bizarre metal tokens, like the top hat and the dog and the battleship. I love those. Um, I've always wondered about those. And there's like an iron, like a weird iron. There's like so I many. I love iron. the iron. I always I, pick the iron. <laughs> I also pick the iron. I pick the iron every time because I thought it was the weirdest possible thing you could be. Uh, and there's no explanation of how they all fit together or how they have anything to do with Monopoly. Um, they don't have anything to do with Monopoly. They were there because Parker Brothers had an agreement with a toy company next door to use all of their leftover stock of little metal charms that were used in, like, jewelry. Um, how interesting. So they just had a bunch of, like, buckets of this stuff, and they just poured it into Monopoly because oh. it was cheap. Uh, and that's how you end up with, like, a bunch of garbage in your game. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, we, we didn't sell enough charm bracelets this Christmas. you got to take this junk from us. <laughs> Yeah, I guess they already had, like, molds and stuff, so pewter was cheap and mildly toxic, and you just put it in kids' games and, and sell it however you want. Um, so, yeah, that's, like, the cheapest option they had. It seems like little metal weird tokens would be random, and they are. They're, that's they're totally super random. interesting. Um, uh, and here, like, this is where we get to the point where, like, Monopoly is a huge success. People love it. It's going great. It's also, like, the death of board gaming in America for a, a half a century. <laughs> uh, so Monopoly goes great, but after the war, you see a huge decline as games are now seen as children's toys. Um, and what was previously a pastime that was seen across generations, um, that wasn't really the case anymore. And some of those ideas started dying out, and it was suddenly being marketed solely to children. But I feel like if you play by the actual rules, it's pretty tough for a kid. Yeah, the game as a whole, if you play by the rules, is a, is a bidding game. And so it's, it is really hard, particularly if you don't have, like, good math skills. You're probably going to lose a game of Monopoly by the rules. Most people don't play by the written rules. They play by the rules that they learned, and those rules have been modified and changed over generations. The game is supposed to be about two hours long, but house rules can make that, like, up to eight hours or more <laughs> uh, by changing just a few small rules. There's not a lot going on in the game, so if you change a couple of small rules, you can m make that math broken to the point where the game is functionally unwinnable and can go on forever which can be good for a little kid like free parking all you have to do is change free parking and you can you can ex double or triple the length of the game just by adding that little free parking rule um did you play monopoly with your family sarah as a kid yeah specifically our old friend nicole and i used to like play marathons of monopoly and we had the free parking rule changed and it would take us like four hours <laughs> <laughs> because either one of us would go into an extreme amount of debt and then we'll just pay you back later when you end, you know, and then it just went on and on, so. But the game does have rules. It does actually have rules, and they do go back all the way to 1906. Um, the rules, like, are, they are functional. They do work. Um, but people did stop seeing games as, as anything other than children's toys after Monopoly, pretty much. And they still made other games. Like, they, they went on to make Sorry. They went on to make Risk. They, um, Parker Brothers became exceedingly popular, um, but the way that we saw games started to change. Um, as the games were no longer parlor amusements. And that was the idea. That's like an adult game. Like, children didn't play parlor amusements. Children didn't hang out in parlors at all. Uh, that was like an adult thing. Uh, so it took like, like 50 years for games to come back in America. Like, after this point, there were still more children's games made. But for, for the idea of adult games to be produced and manufactured and marketed in America, it took until Catan in 1995 for the idea of adult games to come back in this country. It was just like a total game dry spell for a long, long time. Um, so Europe had a, like a whole gaming revolution long before it happened here. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's basically the history of board gaming in America and how board games started out as a, 
a religious pastime and then ended up as like a capitalist reinforcement system. <laughs> we'll have to dig up some of those religious games. I looked at a couple of pictures of the religious games and they are quite, quite interesting looking because they weren't produced in a factory. They were produced by hand. They're quite beautiful. Um, they look really, really good. Like handmade paintings, which is what they are. We went to the um, Museum of Toys and Miniatures just outside Kansas City. And they had some really old board games in there. And I thought it was interesting. They had one called Paperboy. And it just looked ancient. Like it was really, really worn down. But like even seeing it behind the glass, I was like, oh, I want to play that game. <laughs> I just want to play board games all the time. I'm like, can we take that out and play with it? Because <laughs> I didn't ask. It turns to dust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I touch it and it just poof. <laughs> Actually, that's an, inter- that's an interesting side because I saw it. there was this one thing on, that came up on Board Game Geek. There was, I don't remember the name of the game. I probably shouldn't say it anyways. Oh, I know what it was. It's Darkies in the Watermelon Patch. Oh, God. Okay, this is a fake game. It, it was, it was, people thought it was a real game from the early 19th What's century. What's it called? Darkies in the Melon Patch. It is an extraordinarily racist game. Um, the people thought it was made in like 1860. Uh, and collectors were collecting on eBay. And there was this guy on Board Game Geek who looked at the copies that were circulating. There were only like 10 copies or 20 copies or something available. Um, and he looked at pictures that people had taken and were like, look at how crazy this racist board game is that was marketed to children. And he's like, no, there's no way that was made in 1860. Uh, he's like, th- that couldn't happen. Uh, and he went and tracked down these copies on eBay, bought one of them, and then did like forensic analysis. And he's like, number one, Reason why this was not a game made in 1860. Because if you look at it under a magnifying glass, it was clearly printed on an inkjet printer. <laughs> He's like, oh, oh no. This is not an early American racist game. He's like, there, there probably were racist early American board games made by hand, but he's like, they weren't made in a factory or anything else. He's like, this is being made today to appeal to people today. To appeal not to racists today but to appeal to people who are angry that racists existed or racists it's hard to say it's hard to say exactly who because somebody started making it they started constructing it and pretending like it was early american like americana as these it looks kind of like the way these board games were made which is it looks kind of hand-painted and it's got the weird fonts and it's obviously crazy racist and it seems like something you would make in 1860 but it was made in the last like eight years but invented and constructed that person was never identified who was making no, them? No, nobody knows who was making them. They just showed up hmm. in the world and started being marketed to people under various in various places in various ways. Um, and nobody thought to to check on whether it was oh, like a real object. because what a weird thing a to real make object. up. I know, it's a bizarre, but somebody thought that up, did like their their art design, and that was their, that was their thing. They were like, this is what I'm going to do today. I'm going to make a pretend piece of American Americana. And what is more early American than extreme racism. So, Shoots and Ladders is real, and, and if anybody sees super racist early American board games, they're not real, they didn't exist, or if they did, there's only one copy. And no, no company ever made those. They weren't, they didn't happen. It was all very, very wholesome, very Christian, very, they were all very positive. <laughs> yeah, yeah our, our, our history with, well, all games, not just board games, every game, sports included, apparently, uh, it has been very, like, tenuous. Mm. It's a very recent idea that you can play a game at all. Yeah, nowadays, the only thing that I've heard nowadays that 
parents are afraid of is things like D&D. Yes. D&D or Magic the Gathering. Um, anything, I that? guess, that has the ma- magical or occult kinds of themes. Those are the kinds of things that people, at least in the United States, are still scared are going to lead their children to the devil. My mom told me when I was little that if I played D&D, it would lead the devil to the house. She right. said that to you? She said that. She said that to me. Well, I guess it wasn't guaranteed. It was likely that it would bring either the devil or ghosts into the house. <laughs> and so we couldn't have D&D in the house. And that my brother had played D&D and that he had endangered the household. <laughs> my mom would only ban the Ouija board. Like, she thought that there was the devil inside there. She's like, don't bring that in the house. I, like, I got one from a friend once and she like swatted it out of my hand. She's like, put that away. <laughs> Hey, mom. <laughs> my mom. Yeah, my mom told me if we, if she told me, a st- we were like, if you bring the Ouija board in the house, you're going to bring in ghosts and they're going to take over your body. And I'm like. <gasps> That's what my mom said. I, yeah, my mom, what? <laughs> she's like, you're going to be mom, possessed. She then described in detail. She's like, when I was little, I got a Ouija board. I wasn't afraid of it. I thought I could handle the Ouija board. Got a Ouija board, asked it a question, answered the question. Then ghost possessed me. She described she how a ghost possessed her. <laughs> she said that? Yes, she said that. She said a ghost possessed her and hovered over her bed for like a year after she got the Ouija board. And she's like, I never should have got the Ouija board. No, do not get a Ouija board. It's a terrible idea. Oh my God. There will be ghosts. They will come if, to your if house. If both of your parents said the exact same thing, I wonder if it's coming from a specific piece of media. I'm sure. I just think, I just, yeah. My mom always said that they would bring bad, horrible spirits into your house and you'd open a portal or something <laughs> to another dimension. I was like, okay, mom, I won't bring one home anymore, okay? <laughs> yeah, the Ouija board is another, it's a pretend tradition. It's it's absolutely, it's not, there's not like a history of Ouija boards. They invented the Ouija board in the 60s. Really? Uh, yeah, it's just a completely it made so up. old. Yeah, it's not. They they made it up entirely. The word Ouija uh, is, is, is a made up concept. It's all intended to, to like be fake voodoo. But it's a good example of how you would start to think of games as attracting the devil into your house <laughs> because it's so easy to start to believe that this simple little is nothing to a Ouija board. It's a board with some letters and a piece of plastic that costs like three cents to manufacture. And, um, and it's that simple, that simple to make a board game seem like, a, at the very least, a magical device. I don't know if it was marketed to children or adults at that point, but I'm, I'm sure it was originally, I'm sure it was originally marketed to children. Just like, hey, hey kids, have fun. And then their parents get like, don't bring ghosts into our house, <laughs> Parker Brothers. <laughs> yeah, I learned a lot. I appreciate everything you taught me today. <laughs> glad it was. I'm glad it was interesting. Yeah, it was great. All right, this has been Play DNA, and as always, play safe and don't let the devil in the house.